Hi, I'm Miss Tyler, and welcome back to Context for Kids, where I teach you the stuff that most adults don't even know, which is cool. Now, parents, if you have littler kids and you want a curriculum more for them, my friend Sarah Hawks Valente has written a very cool book called Lessons in Yeshua's Torah that has short Bible lessons, coloring pages, and fun craft ideas, and all the stuff that I am so not good at doing. You can find that on Amazon.com, and no, she didn't pay me to talk about that. (laughs) I also have books available for kids starting at age 7 and up on bigger topics that I can't talk about in a half hour, also on Amazon, and I do get paid to talk about those, but only if you buy one. Now, you can find the links for those on my contextforkids.com website, uh, along with transcripts and recordings of all past broadcasts of this. Now, two weeks ago... We talked about God's creative word and how cool that is. Last week, we talked about how God showed how different he is from all false gods by explaining that he created the earth not for himself, but for us. Now, today's program is called Nature is Not God, and we'll be reviewing some stuff from last week, but, you know, that's how we learn best, by reminding ourselves of what we've already learned until it sticks permanently in our brains. Now, later on in the Bible, this stuff will be super important to know. Understanding the world all around the Israelites and why they kept worshiping other gods will help us not to fall into similar types of sins and will also make us understand why they thought that way even when God told them not to. Otherwise, we might think that they're silly or stupid and we won't have compassion. Now, compassion is when we try to be understanding when people have done something wrong or when they're suffering because of something bad has happened to them. It's very important to try and understand the world that the Bible was written in because when we don't, we sometimes come to some very wrong conclusions. We need to understand why they thought the that why they thought they were doing right and when they were actually doing wrong. Now, fortunately, about 150 years ago, archaeologists started finding ancient clay tablets in Israel, which is the land of the Bible, and in the countries all around it. Because it's very dry there, and because the documents were baked hard as a rock, they survived for thousands of years. They're called cuneiform tablets, and I will post some cool videos and pages for you to look at when I put up the transcript for this. I will often do that, so be sure to subscribe to my blog, contextforkids.com. Now, these tablets tell us all sorts of things about how people in Bible times thought and believed and lived. In fact, there are so many just sitting around that haven't been translated yet. I've heard that there are like half a million of them. Maybe you will learn to do that and make an important discovery. You know, there's still so much to see and learn and do and discover and invent, and there are many ways to serve God. Now, in the ancient world, they didn't think about things scientifically. They didn't understand why seeds grow into new plants. They'd never seen one of those videos that shows how a seed grows underground, and they didn't have the science to understand why. They knew about seeds, of course. You know, where... And knew that if you put one in the ground, and it rained on it, 
that a plant would grow. But, but here's where things get different, where they thought entirely differently than we do. They didn't know about the rain cycle that God perfectly designed to water the earth, and they didn't know that he genetically designed seeds with a blueprint for a new plant. In Canaan, the land later called Israel, they believed that Dagon, the grain god, made the seeds grow into plants and that Baal, the storm god, made it rain. We know this because of evidence um, found in cuneiform tablets. Now, we didn't know what kind of gods Baal and Dagon were until just recently. So when you hear that Baal was a sun god and Dagon was a fish god, well, those are stories made up hundreds and even thousands of years later by people who were guessing. And they didn't know any better. No one had worshipped these gods for so long that no one was alive who remembered what kinds of gods they were. Rashi and, and David Kimhi were responsible for people believing that Dagon was a fish god, and it even made its way into a very famous epic called Paradise Lost, written by John Milton. Now, people heard it so much that they assumed it was right. And you can even find images in museums of mermen who were mislabeled as being Dagon. But now we know better. That's why archaeology is so important to understanding the Bible. And, and what we think we know isn't always right. So, the Bible told us that the false gods would be forgotten and would no longer be on anyone's lips, which means that they, they wouldn't be worshipped anymore, and the Bible is right. The Bible is so right that all we knew for a long time was their names and nothing else about them. They were forgotten for so long that now we can learn about them and not at all be tempted to worship them or even think they... Um, you know, we even think they were silly, okay? I mean, <clears throat> no one actually thinks that Dagon makes the crops grow anymore, and, and no one thinks that Baal Hadad makes it rain. We know that God created everything so well that things run very smoothly. But we mustn't ever make the mistake of thinking that it all runs without him. Creation still needs God. And still answers to him, and we still need God, and we still need to answer to him. Some people think, or maybe just act like he created everything and went away. The Greek philosophers, now some of them actually believed that. Excuse me. They thought that the gods weren't interested in humans at all and, and didn't care. Well, they were kind of right because when you don't really exist, you can't be interested in anyone, right? Without God, nothing that exists would exist anymore, and nothing that works would work anymore. How could it? So we don't have to ever worry about him leaving us or forsaking us. As long as we're here, it means that he's here too. Now, in Genesis... God was very specific about what he had Moses write down. The people of the ancient world, and even a great many people today, 
thought that everything in nature was run by individual gods. Today, even in remote places in China, they practice a religion called animism. Now, I know that animism sounds like animal worship, but that isn't right. Animism is when you believe that everything has a spirit inside it. In a way, they see rivers and rocks and mountains as alive and needing to be worshipped. And I say, in a way, because what they believe is that there are spirits inside the rocks and rivers that can be happy or get angry and they need to be kept happy or bad things happen. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is called appeasement. And, and don't worry if you don't understand right now. Appeasement is about making someone else happy by doing things for them or giving them what they want. They might sacrifice animals in order to bribe these spirits into protecting them or, or not cursing them and making them sick. Now, you guys who have little brothers or sisters, you probably understand this totally. Like, okay, or but even if you don't, like, when you go to the store and your kid is behaving really badly and screaming and the parents give him a chocolate bar to shut him up, that's appeasement. And in the ancient world, people would appease their gods in order to keep them from getting angry and having temper tantrums and destroying their lives by making the crops die. You know, which would make them and their animals starve, or not giving them children, or not giving them any rain for their crops and their trees. You know, they didn't have sprinklers, or not protecting them from their enemies when they get attacked. False gods could be very, very mean when they didn't get what they wanted, or at least that's what they thought about them. So even when they were starving, they would sacrifice an animal to make that god happy because they thought that their gods actually ate the meat, but, you know, really, the priests ate the meat. Now, appeasement was about bribing the gods so that things would go well. It was a terribly stressful way to live, and God was showing his people that he isn't anything like that. He can't be bribed because he doesn't need anything. And you may be wondering why I'm even telling you about this. You see, all the things that they worshipped and appeased as gods in the ancient world? In Genesis 1, Moses made sure to tell us that they, not only were they weren't, not only weren't they gods, but they were just another created thing. And not only that, not only weren't they gods, but they were there to serve and be used by men and women not to rule over them. In ancient Egypt, for example, they had the sky goddess, Nut, and the earth god, Gab, and then there was Shu, the air god. But what does God tell us about himself and about the sky and the land and the air? God says that he created them. He didn't give birth to them. God didn't have babies who popped out as the sky and the land and the air. He created them out of nothing. He was telling his people, you don't have to serve these things because they are just things 
and they don't even have personal names. They're just things that I made for you. They will serve you. You don't have to appease them. That's what the first three days told them. Then, as he told Moses, he created all plant life. He said that he created the seeds so that they would make more of the same kind of plants. He didn't tell them that to teach them science because they wouldn't have understood it that way. He told them that so that they would know that gods like Dagon and Ninurta weren't responsible for the crops. He was saying, you don't have to bribe these gods so that your plants will grow. I made them to grow without anyone else's labor except your own. You will grow them to feed yourself and your animals, not as food for these pretend gods who can't even manage to feed themselves. He created the sun, moon, and stars, but although I'm calling them that, he doesn't call them anything but greater and lesser lights. Did you ever notice that? Why didn't he call them Shemesh and Yoreach? They're Hebrew names. He didn't give them names because the other nations gave them proper names instead of descriptive names and in worshipped them as gods. They worshipped them as the sun gods Ra and Shapash and Utu and the moon god Sin and Yarich and Baal Haman. No, says God. They're just things. They aren't alive. There is no living spirit in them as there is in animals and humans. They are things that I made so you can have days and years and moedim, meaning times to celebrate holy days with me. No matter how beautiful they are, don't mistake them for gods. I made them for you. Today when we say sun and moon, those are just descriptions. We know that our sun is not the only sun in the universe and that most of the other planets in our solar system have moons. Those are descriptive names, not proper names as though we think they are living things. Then he created birds and fish and told them to be fruitful and multiply. It was up to the fish and birds and flying insects to multiply, not to any gods who lived in the ocean or in the air. God blessed them. Remember, that was the first blessing he ever spoke. And so they got their ability to have babies from him. I actually have no idea what gods were involved with fish. I haven't studied that, and I'm too lazy to look it up, but I know about Sobek and Kanum, the, the gods of the Nile in Egypt, but they weren't responsible for the fish. Oh, well. I'm sure someone was. They had gods and goddesses for everything, and they wouldn't have left out the fish. So what would he say here through Moses? When you want food, pray to me. You don't have to make any other gods happy in order to eat fish. I created them for you. So don't give anyone else credit for having any control over it. Animals were next. He created creeping things like lizards and bugs and wild animals like horses and pigs and lions and camels, some of which could be tamed and domesticated, and livestock, cows, sheep, and goats. Boy, howdy, were there a lot of false gods linked to livestock. Tammuz is probably the most famous. Although people have called him a sun god, 
When they found all those cuneiform tablets, we found out that he was actually a shepherd god and an agricultural god. I did a ton of research on him about five years ago. Oh, also another famous god supposedly responsible for livestock was Mithra. He was the protector of cattle in ancient, ancient Persia. But God made the livestock to be fruitful and to multiply. So again, God's saying, pray to me for your cows and sheep and goats to have lots of babies because I created them. Tammuz can't help you. He's not even real. And then God created people. And he created people to rule over and have use of everything he'd created. Oh, except one thing. He never gave people any command or blessing to rule over other people. hope I mentioned that last week. So that's so important. In pagan religions, nature has to be served by people because nature is over and above people and is controlled by a kabillion different gods and spirits. In God's creation, man rules over nature wisely. If man rules over nature unwisely, then nature dies and we die too. Remember when Noah brought all those animals on the ark and he brought two of each kind except for the clean livestock animals? He brought seven of each of those. Now, imagine what would have happened if he'd eaten one of the unclean animals when there were only two of each. Oops. So much for that species. It's going to be pretty extinct pretty darn fast as the other one dies. No, Noah had to be wise. God gave Noah animals for eating and animals that were supposed to go out and populate the earth again. But even with 14 each of sheep, goats, and cows, and other animals like camels, which are too useful to eat, and giraffes, they still could eat a lot of meat or else they wouldn't have many of those left either. They had to be wise in how they ruled over God's creation. The horses probably ran away because we don't see them being ridden by anyone in the Bible until we run into the Egyptians. So, the horses ran down to Egypt <laughs> and the donkeys stayed close by. Of course, the Bible doesn't say any of this and I made that up. I'm just playing what if. I mean, the part about the seven pairs of clean animals and the one pair of unclean is in the Bible. The rest is just me thinking thoughts and, and we can do that and it's okay. But we have to make sure that we don't mistake them for being in the Bible. Sometimes people say crazy things and we hear them often enough that we think they're in the Bible when they aren't. You know, when we talk about the Tower of Babel, we will hear about a lot of things that people think the Bible says, but the Bible doesn't say it. I always think that's a lot of fun. So, we're very special. God tells us in Genesis that he made us to be more special than nature. That means that we're more special than the rarest flower on earth. We're more special than the strongest lion or fastest horse or the smartest dog or the cutest cat. God was telling us that nature was created for us by him because he wants us to be taken care of. We weren't created to take care of God. We were created to worship him, obey his commandments, and have a relationship with him as his people. Some people today think that nature is more special than human beings, but they're very wrong. Nature is precious and must be protected. But that's an entirely different thing. As part of ruling over nature, we must be responsible about how we treat it. We shouldn't just kill things for no reason. 
Some animals have gone extinct or almost went extinct because people wanted a certain kind of feather in their hat or a certain type of fur hat or coat. But that's not responsible, and it isn't respecting God's creativity in his work. Imagine if you created something and your younger brother or sister broke it. Maybe you don't have to imagine that. I can tell you a story about what my baby brother Adam did to my Rubik's Cube, but I won't. (laughs) Maybe you have made models or Lego towers or something, and then someone came along and destroyed it. Maybe you worked really hard and were very creative about how you did it. When someone destroys our good work, we feel sad and unloved, right? So we must be very sure not to destroy God's good work either. We can use it, but we must not destroy it. So we can eat cows and sheep and goats and chickens, but if we eat them all, then we have not been very good stewards of what he provided. Stewards are people that are put in charge of other people's things, like If I had a collection of antique cars and I hired a steward to take care of them, he would have to make sure that they didn't get all dirty and dented, and he would have to make sure that they don't break down. After all, if I came down to the garage and all my cars were messed up, he'd be in big trouble, right? Well, one day, Jesus, God's powerful and creative word, is coming back. We ought to show our respect and thankfulness for all his creation by making sure it's still good like he left it to us. Next week, we'll be talking more about our job as God's image bearers and our responsibilities. But God doesn't just show us in Genesis that nature is only a created thing. He shows us that all through the Bible. In the mythologies of other nations, like we talked about last week, The gods were usually fighting with each other, and and they often had to fight with nature, like Tiamat, the huge sea creature, or Apophis, the huge serpent of the underworld that tried to eat the sun god Ra every single stinking night. It's like, dude, give it up. You're never going to win. Don't you get tired of having your butt kicked every night? Have some dignity, man. Go to the gym, work out for a few months, drink some protein shakes, and then come back and maybe then you can win. Now in Exodus, we will see God showing the Egyptians that all creation is just waiting to obey his commands and only his commands. That will be exciting to read, but what about Jesus? Did Jesus command nature the way God does in the Bible? He absolutely did. In the Gospel of Mark, when there was a storm on the Sea of Galilee and his disciples were afraid they would drown, he woke up from where he'd been sleeping in the boat and told the sea to be muzzled, and everything was calm. Another time, he walked on top of the water. One time, he wanted some figs, and he went to a fig tree, and it didn't have any. He cursed the tree so that no one would ever eat from it again. When he and his disciples came back later, the tree had withered and died. And I'm not even mentioning all the people he healed and all the demons he kicked to the curb. Everything in the world is created by God, and therefore everything has to obey him. Except us, because he made us special with the free will to decide to disobey him. And that's sad when we do that. But he wants people to choose him. Animals can't choose him. 
They have to obey. But we're different, and we will talk about just how different next time. Now, parents, if um, you want to get a head start on next week's lesson, check out my books, Context for Kids, Image Bearing, Idolatry, and the New Creation, available at Amazon.com. I'm not going to be covering the entire book, obviously, just a few small parts. Um, now, if you've missed previous episodes, check out contextforkids.podbean.com to download the program or contextforkids.com to read the transcripts and to see what cool links I have come up with for you to learn from. Until next week, just remember that I love you, I'm praying for you, and I hope you have a great week studying the Bible with the people who love you.